Welcome to Public Health Out Loud, Public Health for the Public. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald, Medical Director of the Rhode Island Department of Health. I'm Dr. Philip Chan. Welcome, everyone. And Dr. Chan, always good to see you. So the pandemic continues in Rhode Island, continues in the United States, and really all over the planet. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the air that we breathe. And it reminds me of that old song by the Hollies, All I Need Is The Air That I Breathe. So who saw the British rock band, The Hollies, coming in today's episode? Probably no one. There we go. Um, But maybe it should have been the theme song of the pandemic. Maybe it would have been a shorter pandemic. So Dr. Chen, are you excited about today's episode? I'm very excited. We have two very special guests. Uh, Another McDonald. Yeah, who saw that coming, right? So there's a bunch of McDonald's. Let me introduce my brother, Jeremy. Jeremy, how are you today? Doing well, Jim. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Dr. Chan. Thank you for having us. It's good to have my brother, Jeremy McDonald, who's a professional engineer. Good to have him here today, because we're going to talk to some experts about indoor air quality today and talking to people who ventilation is their business. And we have also from the Rhode Island Department of Health, Dr. Mike Burns. Dr. Burns, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. So as we get started, maybe we could just start with people telling a little bit about themselves. Maybe, Jeremy, could you talk a little bit about yourself? And then Mike, could you go in next? Sure. Thank you. My name is Jeremy McDonald. I'm a principal at Gutta Conso Consulting Engineers. We are a consulting engineering firm based in uh, New York City with offices in Troy in Long Island, where we specialize in building, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems, uh, more commonly known as HVAC. And we do an awful lot of work with nursing homes, multifamily, hospitals, higher ed, K-12, in developing strategies and implementing strategies to improve indoor air quality. And thanks, that was great. So Dr. Burns, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, hi everyone, I'm Mike Burns. I'm the Principal Environmental Health Risk Assessment Toxicologist here at RIDO. I think I might have the longest title. Um, and I have a background in environmental health. I have a PhD in environmental health from the University of Minnesota. And I taught uh, environmental health at Illinois State University for seven years. And so I tend to be kind of the go-to person for miscellaneous environmental health issues at RIDO. Uh, And so through that, I've got some background in ventilation, but I've had to become an expert since COVID. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Burns, and thank you, Jeremy, uh, for joining us. You know, I have to say, just as we start this conversation here, that really one of the things that I've learned the most about as well, uh, not just in terms of some of the nitty gritty, but just the overall importance uh, is ventilation in terms of how we think about some of these infectious diseases. So maybe a question to you first, Dr. Burns. I think, again, from my experience, this whole concept of ventilation may be the most important aspect of dealing with uh, the pandemic. I mean, we've talked a lot about masks, very important. We've talked about physical distancing, also very important. But ventilation, I feel like it's something that kind of gets, it gets put to the side, like, yeah, yeah, it's important. But I have to tell you, I I think this may be one of the most important parts of addressing the pandemic is how we think about the air we breathe and the spaces that we work, play, or live in. What are your thoughts about that, Dr. Burns? Yeah, it's interesting. Like, if you think back to the 19th century, when public health, like health departments really started, ventilation was key. Everyone was focused on ventilation because everyone was concerned about tuberculosis. A lot of the health departments got their start with tuberculosis and concerns about 
uh, tenement buildings that were overcrowded and didn't have windows or any sort of ventilation. And so old buildings that were built around the turn of the century often have really good ventilation because they were built to try to protect people against tuberculosis. And we knew a lot about this, like during the 1918 flu pandemic, um, people were really thinking about ventilation, but it's something that in the past um, hundred years or so has become less and less a part of public health. And now with COVID being another airborne disease, it's coming back to kind of the forefront. So it's a lot of it's rediscovering stuff that we used to know, which is kind of interesting. Uh, the Atlantic did a, a piece about, um, about that about two weeks ago. And it's interesting, but yeah, understanding ventilation is important to COVID. We still don't know the degree to which airborne transmission, which can, can be controlled with ventilation, drives COVID versus the larger droplets that fall to surfaces or that you get on your face or whatever. Um, there's a balance there, but it's certainly a piece of the puzzle and um, trying to control COVID we want to try to approach it through as many different controls as we can. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Dr. Byrne. So, Jeremy, this leads us to our next question is, what do, you, what do we know about transmission of viral particles based on indoor air quality? I know it's something you and I have discussed quite a bit uh, during the pandemic, but what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. You know, as, as a professional engineer, the literature is very clear that we need to provide ventilation for our buildings. And that's actually regulated through the building code for all commercial buildings. And depending on what type of building you have, that'll depend on how many air changes per hour you need. So the ventilation, uh, which we measure in air changes per hour, is critical. The other critical variable is relative humidity. Uh, we know that viruses do much better in propagation with very low relative humidity, uh, mainly because they're very dense, they remain buoyant in the air, and they just have a longer time to stay in the air. So he, us as engineers, we try to make sure that our buildings are well ventilated and that we have moderate relative humidity of 40 to 50% or 40 to 60% relative humidity, uh, which is very difficult to do by the way. Um, we've all experienced going into a building where it's kind of stuffy and it just doesn't feel right. And really what we're feeling is that we're not purging that building space with outdoor air. Um, you know, like the Holly said, it's the air we breathe. And if we can purge our buildings of outdoor air um, in the situation when we have that nasty COVID virus in the space, we have an opportunity to purge that nasty virus out into the great outdoors. So to me, those are the two key variables, ventilation and relative humidity. When we talk about relative humidity, when you say low relative humidity, that means the air is dry. And when it's high relative humidity, it's kind of humid or muggy. Is that what you're saying? Correct. And, and we feel that, right? Here in the Northeast in the wintertime, when we have really low relative humidity, our fingers get dry. Um, at night, we get that little hiccup of a cough, right? That's because our membranes are dried out. So we feel that. Also, if I could just mention on the relative humidity aspect, and now I'm going to step into your expertise as medical doctors, our bronchial systems benefit greatly when we humidify our personal HVAC system, which is our, our bronchial passage. In my home, 
we run uh, humidifiers. We've run it every night through the winter of the pandemic to try to protect ourselves at home and give our immune system uh, more tools to fight with. Yeah, that's really fantastic. I'd actually never thought about our, our pulmonary system as an HVAC system. I, lo- I really love that analogy. That really, really resonates. Let me ask this. You know, this is something that I've heard, maybe a question to both of you, whoever wants to answer first, but I've heard that some, to your point, Jeremy, about the air exchanges, I've heard that it's as simple as cracking the window and you can really, you know, achieve what you want to do in terms of ventilation just by opening a window. So I guess First question is, is that true? And then the second question is, what are some other common sense strategies that you can take just to, in general, improve indoor air quality? Let me take it first, Dr. Burns. Sure. Well, I'll give you the classic engineer answer. It depends. Certainly, the more ventilation, the better. But we all know we have to do it within reason. On the cold winter day, when it's two degrees out, it's just not practical to have our windows open. Although, to Dr. Burns' point earlier, due to the 1918 pandemic, buildings were designed to heat the spaces with the windows open because the city leaders recognized how important ventilation was. Back to practicality, um, the more the better. And the more that we can push air outdoors away from occupants, the better. So in my house, what we try to do on a moderate winter day, put a little little propeller fan in, in the window and just try to get that to push outdoors. Why? Well, if someone has the nasty virus within the home, we want to push those particles out in a way and presumably there's no one sitting outside my window right now. So to answer your question, absolutely. Um, for both the uh, Thanksgiving holiday and the Christmas holiday, we didn't have large gatherings, but we didn't have people comfortable or, or coming by. So we did crack those windows. Unfortunately, we had moderate days. Um, and then we could monitor the heating system, crank up the heat a little bit, open the windows. I think it works. Yeah, and along with that, you can also, like, ha- if you've got fans that are venting outside, like in your bathroom, um, you can turn those on, and that will help increase the ventilation as well. Um, especially in, like, commercial buildings, the recommendation during COVID is to run the bathroom fans all the time. It's always There's always been a trade-off between good ventilation and energy efficiency, And in the last 50 years or so, energy efficiency has really been the driving force in a lot of the decisions that have been made. Um, But now with COVID, we're trying to shift maybe back a little bit and kind of realize that there's kind of a trade-off there where it's going to be less efficient to have your windows open or to run the fan in the bathroom um, and have cold air potentially coming in in the winter or hot air in the summer. but that if you've got a fair number of people in an area, you want to make sure that you're getting plenty of fresh air. If it's just you by yourself at home or whatever, there's no need for that. But um, if you've got a, a, enough people, you definitely want to keep some fresh air cycling through. And along with that, um, kind of some common sense is just pay attention. Like if a room feels stuffy and it does like your body is able to kind of sense when the air quality isn't as good. Um, And so if it feels stuffy, open up a window, uh, let some fresh air in, uh, especially if you're in an area that's kind of crowded with other people. Yeah, you remind me, Dr. Byrne, something Jeremy and I have talked about before is if you walk in a gym and it smells like a gym, you probably walk out of that gym because it's probably not ventilated appropriately. But it kind of lends me to my next question. And we'll start with you, Jeremy. Are there homes or businesses 
that are at higher risk of having poor air quality? What, what's your experience in this space? Yeah, certainly. Um, and again, I, I always bring it back to the three fundamentals, high density, poor ventilation, uh, low relative humidity. Um, certainly restaurant and bars um, and, can fit into that um, category. Um, I worry desperately about nursing homes and Jim and I have talked a lot about this. I've, I've been working in nursing homes for 20 years and um, just saw too many tragedies count through the pandemic and we all know that. Um, uh, multifamily, I worry about multifamily a lot too because of the high density and especially the multifamily buildings that were built in the 70s without operable windows. Um, if those makeup air handling units and exhaust fans aren't working and you don't have the ability to open a, a window, that's going to be a problem. Prisons, for sure. But I, I do want to clarify, any building type can be good. Any building type can be really, really bad. So what we really have to look at is how much ventilation do we have? Can we do something with the relative humidity? And what's our occupant density? And then can we take advantage of technology to monitor those conditions and tell us through data logging, hey, is there a problem here? Um, and, and also do a check. All buildings, you know, nursing homes, higher ed, K through 12, et cetera, et cetera, they all have to go by the building code when they're first open. It's a really good idea to do a checkup and make sure that they're meeting those, uh, the building code prescribed air changes to, to make sure that they're safe buildings. Yeah, and on this topic, there was an article in MMWR, uh, the Mortality and Morbidity Weekly Reports from CDC, about school buildings and the different factors that increased um, transmission. Um, and obviously, occupancy, like the crowdedness, is a huge factor. Um, and if you've got a high rate of COVID in a population, there's more likely to be someone with it. And if there's a lot of people there and so it's more likely to transmit. They also found some interesting things, which was the old buildings actually had less transmission than the new ones. And new in New York City schools is built after 1970, um, which doesn't really seem new to me, but um, they found that schools built after 1970 had the highest risks and which makes sense because of that whole, the ones over a hundred years ago, built over a hundred years ago had the lowest risk and it's that draftiness. And it also looked like um, the poorer schools had, when you adjusted for the fact poor communities had higher infection rates and often had higher um, density. Uh, they actually, the buildings actually had, were more um, protective against COVID. Uh, and they think that's probably because those poor buildings were less likely to have been renovated and had, uh, so didn't have insulation to the same degree as the richer ones. Uh, and so there was probably more of that draftiness, early 1900s uh, ventilation draftiness that kind of went with the way buildings were constructed back then. We usually think about the newest buildings as being kind of better because if you've got a mechanical ventilation system where you have a fan blowing through uh, and you can control that and you have a good idea of how much air is going through, that's always going to be better. Um, whereas if you've got a radiator, that's not providing any ventilation unless you also have a window open uh, or some sort of draftiness to kind of keep air circulating through. 
Um, and so there's always there's always some trade-offs in terms of old building, new building, and it can be kind of counterintuitive sometimes based on what's going on. Can I just add something quick to this point? Because I think that this is really important. Based on, I, I do a lot of work in the New York City metro area, and what Dr. Burns just said, that is the anecdotal evidence, or excuse me, feedback we got from a lot of our clients. I have uh, a client we work with in Harlem, uh, two 200 bed facilities. All they have is operable windows and radiators, and they didn't have one uh, positive COVID case throughout the pandemic. And what the facility manager's telling me is because well, all, we, all we had was windows, so we just opened the windows. Whereas in the newer building stock with non-operable windows and HVAC systems are fantastic, but if they're not working right, you really don't have any recourse and you just can't get that ventilation and you can't purge that nasty virus. Again, I'm not coming from an academic perspective. I'm coming from the perspective of the feedback that I get from my clients. And I 100% agree with Dr. Burns' point. Yeah, thank you both for that. You know, I, I just can't, you know, what I love about this conversation is, uh, is this pearl of wisdom, right? That older buildings uh, may be more drafty and actually have uh, increased ventilation. And we generally have thought about, you know, if you live in a drafty house or have visited a drafty building, one often thinks that that's a bad thing, but it's just so interesting to think about how our advances, if you will, in insulation and other construction approaches have really actually maybe made things worse from an infection control standpoint. I think that's absolutely a, a fascinating pearl of wisdom, something that uh, I certainly didn't know before the pandemic here. Um, but let me ask you both this. So in thinking about building construction, I guess if someone was a landlord, uh, either renting apartments or frankly a homeowner, what are some things that they could consider to do that are affordable uh, that would provide some decent air quality? Also keeping in mind, I think, right, that we live in New England, you know, today is what, 20 degrees, you know, wind chill factor yesterday was, you know, single digits. What are some things that are, are reasonable and make sense uh, given where we live that could just in general improve air quality? I, well, actually, I'm a landlord of a couple small buildings. You know, to me, the most important thing is what we talked about earlier. How do we get ventilation? And for most smaller landlords, they're not going to have an HVAC system. So how do we encourage tenants to open windows? That's for education. Um, one of our tenants was very uh, concerned about indoor air quality. We did give them a HEPA filter, uh, something to put in their space. And me as an IQ guy, we had, I, I probably bored them to tears, everything about HEPA filters. But they report back, they love it. Um, and HEPA filters, they work you know, really quickly on HEPA filters. HEPA filters have been around for, I think, around 50 years. Anytime you go into an operating room in North America and you're going to have an operation, you're being protected by HEPA filters in the hospital ventilation air conditioning system. So what I'm talking about is little portable units. Um, my advice on those is, A, read the directions. Uh, B, make sure it's sized properly. And C, make sure you take off the little plastics that's inside the machine because it won't work with that plastic on. I test some of these systems for my friends and sometimes I find that the plastic isn't taken off. I like the uh, humidifier within the bedrooms. It's been my experience. It's gonna be extremely difficult and nearly impossible to humidify a whole house just because you'll see that that water will migrate. But if you can put the humidifiers in the bedroom, if you can close the door at night, um, I monitor my space conditions with a relative humidity locker. Through the winter, we were able to get that relative humidity up to 28, 30%. It's not the 40% that you know is recommended, 
the 30% is pretty good. It's a lot better than five, six, 8%. And again, it just has to become a habit, have to become a practice, and you have to do it every night. It's really not that hard. And trust me, I think you'll feel better. You know, it's interesting. You talk about these devices. You know, in my own home, I have a very small thermometer with humidity meter on it. So right now in my home, it's a really robust 69.8 degrees and 17% humidity. So not all that, but that's a winter day in New England, right? But I noticed when I go into some homes, so Jeremy in particular, I saw this when I was at our mom and dad's house last Sunday. They have a little device. It looks like a CO2 data locker, a little rectangular device, sits on their kitchen countertop. It's got a smiley face when the CO2 is the right level. You know, what is that all about? And are people really, can people buy those things from places they can afford? Or how, what are those things really about? All right, I can talk to that one because I bought it for them. <laughs> you know, your parents get to a certain age, they have everything. So you just start buying them data lockers. Yes, that particular one, that will monitor temperature, relative humidity, CO2, and particulate. And you're right, it's intuitive. It'll give you the smiley face when things are good. It will give you a sad face or a mean face when things are bad. I have one in my office right now. Since I'm sitting here spewing a lot of CO2 into the air, it's up to 825, which is rather high. Typically, it's around 500 parts per million. Um, They run about $250. And forgive me, I forgot the name but you can buy it online. There's a whole bunch of them out there. We use them at home, friends use them, and we use them in the office. And what I find in the office is the great things about these data loggers is once you start using them, I've seen this with our staff, people start to notice when things are good, when things can be better. Um, We've used these data loggers to signal us, hey, there might be something wrong with the building makeup there. So to answer your question, Jim, about $250 will get you a good one. Um, key variables, temperature, relative to me, CO2, particular count. That's interesting. I noticed when you go to Amazon, I've just put in CO2 data logger. There's a wide selection of products that, that show up. So it's kind of interesting. So, I mean, I, it's something that prior to the pandemic, I actually didn't know you would buy a CO2 data logger. It never dawned on me to do that. Um, so that's something else I've learned out of the pandemic as well. Something else I've done is I have a portable one that I put in my bag. And if I go into a building and I think that CO2 level is too high, I walk right out. Um, that's me. I want to protect myself. On the contrary, a lot of buildings I go into, I say, wow, these CO2 levels are fantastic. I want to be here. And I think one thing about that note, too, the one of the other uh, little pearls I've learned during this is, and going back to the school setting, I think, Dr. Burns, you were talking about this, is that besides uh, infection control, right, there's other advantages uh, to having a lower CO2 count, right? Because higher CO2s make people sleepy. And yep. so I remember you, Dr. Burns, on a, on a call, uh, you know, a couple over the course of the pandemic, talking about, you know what, we just need to address, you know, the CO2 levels in general, not just for infection control, but also because it probably just improves, you know, at least in the school setting, ability for kids to stay awake and learn. Uh, so that was one uh, one pearl that I took away. Any thoughts about that, Dr. Burns? Yeah, that's um, something that's kind of come out in the last five years or so is like, we've always known that CO2 is toxic at high levels. Um, but it turns out that as you get into the levels that you see in a classroom, uh, the, when you've got 30 kids in a in a room and no real ventilation, you get up to levels of carbon dioxide that actually make people sleepy, kind of slow down their brains, uh, and it makes it harder to learn. And so these ventilation discussions that we're having 
are valuable for infection control. They're also gonna help with mold, which is a very common um, issue when you're dealing with schools or with homes, especially in Rhode Island, because we get really humid during the summer. And so these ventilation discussions are gonna help with general health and allergies. Um, and they're also gonna help with our ability to think and do our work and do things because if you're in a properly ventilated space with fresh air and plenty of you know the right amount of oxygen and carbon dioxide your brain works better you're gonna learn better if you're in school or if you're in work or wherever um, and it's just a better environment overall and so there are good things that are kind of coming out of COVID um, in terms of us realizing that some of these things, and especially when it comes to schools, a lot of, a lot of the time schools have had deferred maintenance where if it's not actively killing people or, you know, keeping, you know, it's really obvious, then it's probably something that can wait until there's money and there's never really money to fix the problem. But with COVID, it's really kind of drawn some of the attention back to we need to fix these problems that we've known about but haven't been able to fix. Well, we really can, we just need to find that money and use it. Yeah, you know, Dr. Burns, I think you lead us well into our last question here. And so Jeremy, I'll give you our last question here is, you know, do you think the pandemic presents some opportunities uh, for indoor air quality to be improved for the future? I mean, do you see that as part of our future and any benefits that could come from that? Oh, absolutely. I think that there's a lot of benefits. You know, in, in my own office, as we work to improve the indoor air quality, people are like, well, I don't really know what you're doing up in that duct work there, but boy, my allergies have gone away and I tend to have more energy at lunch. I think this is something that we all know. Um, I, and I think there's, you know, beyond uh, the, the primary benefit of helping us to get beyond this terrible, nasty virus, some of the other benefits, you know, we, we talk about, economic growth and expansion. Well, if we're gonna do this and really invest money, um, a lot of this money is gonna go into the trades. And a lot of this is gonna be concentrated in areas where we need jobs across the country, but, but really focused on our urban areas because that's where the big buildings are. So that's where the big problems are. Also, I, I think mentally, I like everyone else, I was extremely depressed at the beginning of this pandemic. I mean, I think we all were, if we're honest, um, but, through evaluating the indoor air quality and really digging in, professionally, this has been exhilarating. And quite frankly, I have a spirit of optimism because we can see a solution that can address some long-term problems. And you know, for all the reasons of, of protecting our elderly, um, helping our, our children be educated better, and quite frankly, just be more happy. To me, that brings some optimism. Um, so I think that's the light at the end of the tunnel. I think it's a bright one, and I think it's going to be great. Yeah, you know, thank you for, for joining us today. So I want to thank Jeremy McDonald, professional engineer, Dr. Mike Burns, um, environmental health expert at the Rhode Island Department of Health. You know, just to summarize our episode today, you know, one of the things I really think about is, and I think this really gets to this larger point, you know, in, in most recent week, we've seen the United States took a $2 trillion mortgage on our future. And when those monies get spent, one of the things that really should be considered is, how do we improve ventilation? How do we improve indoor air quality? Because that's some of those systemic changes, not just in our schools and our nursing homes and other homes and buildings, but it really does help us for the future, not just to prevent COVID, but to prevent any other 
infectious disease as well. You know, as you said earlier, it creates a healthier living environment. And, you know, we do want the air that we breathe to be just the best we can, not just indoors and outdoors, but everywhere we go here. And so, you know, I, I think it's been a great fun episode to chat through this because ventilation always been important. Um, I think the pandemic's brought it more so to the forefront. Dr. Chan, we're going to go to you. What's the final word for today? Great. Thank you, Dr. McDonald. And thank you uh, both, uh, Jeremy McDonald, Dr. Michael Burns, for joining us. It's been a pleasure. What I took away from this was open a window. It's that simple. So something to consider. But in closing, I leave everyone with a moment of Zen to consider throughout the rest of your day. And here it is, a quote from the Dalai Lama. Love and compassion are necessities, not luxuries. Without them, humanity cannot survive. So let's all show a little bit of love and compassion this week. Thank you all and be well. I want to thank Jose Garcia, our executive producer, Carol Stone, our technical director. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald. I want you to have a good, keep up the great. Thank you.